1: There have been few periods of greater political turmoil in the history of our city and of our country than the middle of the 17th century. About midway on the historical timeline between the plays of Shakespeare and Johnson appearing on the London stage and the Great Plague and the Great Fire, Parliament rose up against its king. In the confusion of the civil wars and the interregnum, one people's organisation in particular had a decisive influence on all that was to follow. It's Saturday, the 14th of March, 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud.
0: Hey, baby, let me take you down So we'll play some strange sights and the sound You ain't never seen the light before Just a song through from your front door
1: Hello, listener. We find ourselves at the beginning of this podcast in Guildhall Yard, and that's not the first time I've said that on this show, but we're here with a different hat on uh, than usual. Quite often, I've visited Guildhall, and it's been my pleasure to speak to people operating various things on behalf of the Corporation of London. The Guildhall Art Gallery is to our right, the library to our left, and Guildhall itself, of course, straight ahead. We're interested in Guildhall but we're coming from the position of one of the 17th century's greatest electro-gypsy bands. the levelers and with me is historian John Rees and we're going to find out more about our escape routes from Guildhall. Yeah well
0: uh, it's certainly true that those levelers have an interest in uh, our levelers of the 17th century and uh, they worked on in fact an album called Freeborn John which uh, the folk artist Reverend Hammer uh, produced a little while back and he's going to be performing at the Lilburn uh, 400 conference that I'm organising this Saturday so From your link to
1: this link, there is a link. There is a link, and we'll revise that link and spell out what's going on in Bishopsgate this weekend, today, in fact. The escape route is important, though. I gather the last time that the levellers were here, they had to sneak across the roof of Guildhall to get away from the authorities.
0: Well, some of the people that were in favour of the... uh parliamentary side in the war did they were besieged in here by a a peace party of demonstrators who wanted to make peace with the king and it all turned so violent that they broke into the guild hall and uh, the people in there some of them at any rate escaped over the rooftops there's a great 17th century pamphlet describing them leaping from rooftop to rooftop across uh, 17th century london to make their way away from the crowd
1: Now, listener, as you know, sometimes security guards spot a microphone muffle and go into a red-eyed rage, and if we see a a posse of such people heading our way, we're going to climb up on the roof, and uh, no, we're not going to do that. What I think we should perhaps start with taking a step back, historically speaking, is... Uh, understand what this group was all about and the circumstances under which they developed. They weren't uh, sort of a traditional political party in the way we would think of one now, were they?
0: No, but they might have been the kind of beginnings of that kind of organisation. I mean, the term political party wasn't really in use when it was used in the 17th century. The word party, it was meant aside in a legal dispute. But during the course of the revolution, it actually became... Uh, the beginnings of modern usage that they would talk about uh, John Pym one of the great parliamentarians and his party and John Lilburn and the Levellers and the Leveller party so it was, it was just on the cusp of being used in that way now of course the, the Levellers weren't a political party in the kind of dues paying social democratic sense that we have today and that really only arose in the last part of the, of the 19th century but they were an organised group perhaps we would call them a political movement Uh, in today's uh, language but um, they did have a newspaper two in fact that supported them they did pay subs John Lilburn used to get up at public meetings and saying we can't do this without money and produce from inside his coat a list of things of leaflets and petitions that were being produced and they had a treasurer that used to collect a sliding scale of subs according to how wealthy the supporters were so they had some of the attributes of, of a political organization and they, they
1: were very much activists then, as well as political philosophers.
0: Yes, if we're talking about an organised group of people who were working the block-and-tackle, the pulleys and levers of the English Revolution, the levellers are that group of people. They weren't the only people, obviously. They were a minority, even within the parliamentary camp, but they were the most radical organisation on the parliamentary side. And at decisive moments in the English Revolution,
1: they were some of the most organised people driving it forward the civil war is shrouded in the fog of war one of the common misconceptions I think is that it is a war which of course it wasn't and then there's the name levellers itself which along with the diggers and the shakers and the quakers and the quackers it seems to hide something that seems vaguely amusing and vaguely silly but I don't really understand what it is. Was, was that a derogatory term? And again, taking a step back, where do they first surface? Is it as a direct result of the civil wars?
0: Yes, and in John Lilburn's case, the most famous of the levellers, a little before that, um, during the 11 years personal rule, when Charles I decided he didn't need to call a parliament, he was just going to run the whole show uh, as a kind of um, divine right of kings, which he was a big defender of, um, there was a, an attempt to clamp down on dissent within uh, or opposed to the Church of England. And uh, many people didn't like the way in which Charles was taking the Church. They thought it was too Catholic, uh, there was too much ceremony, uh, there was too much idol worship. Uh, and they were in favour of a more thoroughgoing Puritan Reformation. And John Lilburn was one of these people. And he was smuggling in dissenting pamphlets from Holland. And that was the first time he ran into trouble with the authorities in the
1: late 1630s. Uh, we know, of course, Holland staunchly protested. I, I didn't realise that Charles I was, he, he wasn't he was himself a Catholic. Was he married no, to a Catholic? he was married to
0: a Catholic, but what they objected to was Catholic-like forms of worship. They thought that um, Charles I and his Archbishop, Archbishop Lord, was driving towards a high church uh, form of uh, church government and church uh, ceremony, and also that this was being enforced in a, in a kind of very, very powerful You've got to remember, really, when we're talking about the church in the 17th century, we're talking about an institution which is, A, a massive landowner, B, you're still paying taxes to it, C, it's compulsory to attend it, D, if you don't attend it, you can be dragged before the courts, fined or imprisoned. So, it's an institution which plays the same role
1: as a landowner, the education system, and a large part of the media does in our society today. Yes, that enforced attendance part puts a new complexion on it, but what what differed in uh, protestantism
0: well they were in favor of a much more democratic church setup you could elect your ministers or they many of them wanted to and in certain places in the city just around the corner here in Coleman street there were certain churches that had acquired the bizarre capacity to elect um their preacher and when they did so they elected radicals um and so there was dissent within the church of england which thought that there should be a much more democratic church setup there should be a much plainer form of worship that uh, in the gathered churches that anyone could stand up and testify rather in the way that Quakers do today in fact Quakers of course have their origin in this, uh, in this period so it was a challenge a political challenge as well as a kind of theological or religious challenge an institutional challenge to the way in which the society was run remember it had been Charles I's father James I who said no bishop, no king i.e. if you challenge the, ch- the church hierarchy you're going to end up challenging the political hierarchy as well and he wasn't
1: wrong about that that word radical packs a heavy punch in the current climate uh, I wonder what radical looked like in the time we're talking of. Well it looked
0: like religious dissent, that's certainly true um, and and has something in common with current usages um, it had the uh, idea that um, you were beginning as the kind of you know etymological origin of the word uh, has it, that you're beginning to look at the deep origins of problems, that you aren't satisfied with amelioration or partial change, that you want something Fundamental to change in the society, although that only really gathered its true force during the course of the revolution itself. Revolutions famously radicalise the people participating in them, but both uh, to the kind of traditional left, but also some of the people who were against the king in the beginning of it looked into the abyss and said, "Whoa! If this is what it means, then maybe we're better off with the existing setup." So there was polarisation
1: as well as radicalization. So there's a a don't question us thing going on here. What about modern day analogues? Is there anything that bears useful comparison uh, going on in the world at the moment? Well,
0: there is a general way um, in which all revolutions have some similarities so um, if we think for instance about the Egyptian revolution in the, in the uh, Arab Spring back in 2011, that starts with a tremendously isolated regime, really only the dictator and his immediate cohorts are really willing to go into bat for, for this regime the vast majority of the rest of society is either disaffected or actively in opposition to it they gather in a kind of broad front but as the revolution develops more and more fundamental more and more radical questions are asked what do we want to replace the existing regime with how are we going to get it we've stripped away the outer defenses of the regime but there's still a hard core of the regime there how are we going to deal with the kind of irremovable element on the other side so there's a a certain logic to revolutions which although there are obviously very, very great differences between any modern society and England in the 17th century,
1: you can see some of those patterns re-emerging, yes. It, it sounds a little like what you're describing there, they might involve a majority of people who aren't, um, at least at the beginning, politically active and are sort of hanging back and uh, tending their vegetables and trying not to get involved.
0: Yes, uh, and and again, this is something which is common, I think, in all in all revolutions. They have to have a, a mass dynamic even to begin, and the English Revolution certainly did John Lewis was one of the people who led the apprentices, the, the apron youths, as they were called, down from the city of London to besiege uh, Westminster. And it was those crowds, um, the threatening nature of those crowds, that was one of the things that got Charles I to quit London and set up the royal standard in Nottingham and to begin the civil war. So it, there has to be a mass dynamic at the beginning. But as that evolves, of course, more and more people begin to see that the whole fate of the society is now in the balance, that uh, you might want to avoid the revolution but the revolution won't avoid you Um, and so they become drawn in on either side. Uh, some remain kind of resolutely neutral um, there was a movement towards the end of this period after England had been through two civil wars, the clubmen who were neutralists who just said look we've had enough of the marauding armies, we've had enough of the taxation, we've had enough of this, we, we just want to be left in peace and they would kind of ward off soldiers, that they were armed, that they would ward off soldiers from
1: either camp actually. Oh, so the neighbourhood watch gone... gone crazy, yes <laughs> What about right here? I'd love to tie us back into London itself. One thing I think I know about the Civil War was that it wasn't cut down, neatly down any uh, geographical lines. You could sort of make broad statements about it I think but it was also within families with different positions being
0: held. Yeah absolutely it divided the society um, down the middle and it divided London um, as well um, although in it in the for the most part, um, London um, and certainly the Royalists thought this um, was the Treasury, the Armory of the Parliamentarian side. But there were certain points at which that was contested. I mean, I mentioned right at the beginning of the of the of the broadcast um, that peace protest here at the Guildhall. That was to settle with the King. That was a protest of conservative forces in London saying we've had enough of this. We didn't realise it was going to be a fight to the end. We just thought we were fighting the King so he would come to a more reasonable accommodation with us. It's time to make that peace now. So that presence was always here in London. And one of the crucial things that the the Levellers did is when that was most threatening, um, just uh, after the Second Civil War in 1647, 1648 when it looked as if the uh, conservative forces in the parliament and here in the city might do a deal with Charles the levelers smashed into that possible consensus for a settlement and broke it up really they petitioned on a mass scale they mobilized uh, the city uh, they put backbone into Cromwell and, and his um and, and his allies and forced the issue to the end where there was the purge of parliament and the
1: execution of the king Well, I was beginning to feel that you were painting a picture of pacifists at the beginning there, but it sounds as though that really transformed over the course of a very very short space of time
0: yes and and they could never be really described in that way partly because they have been through the most uh, bloody warfare that this country has uh, ever seen the revolution really begins in london in 1640 the civil war itself um, when charles leaves london sets up his standard in nottingham that begins in 1642 ends in 1645 and then there's another outbreak in 1648 where Precisely because there's been so much vacillating on the parliamentary side, there's so many people who want to do a deal with the king, including at this point Cromwell, that the royalists regain enough confidence to launch a second civil war. It's only when that civil war is won, the second civil war is won, that the, the really radical political conclusion is drawn, we can't make a peace with this man. He is, a, as they called him in that day, a man of blood. And uh, they had
1: to settle accounts with him. Does that mean that, uh, something I didn't realise, does that mean that the first time around Charles was successful, if not victorious, did he have the public behind him? No, the astounding thing is he was thoroughly beaten on the battlefield. In
0: Marston Moor and then at Naseby in 1645, the Royalist armies were utterly trounced by the new model army uh, under Fairfax and, uh, and Cromwell. But such was the political conservatism in the society that it's almost as if even the victors couldn't imagine a settlement that didn't have the king in it. And so there's this long process of vacillation on their side of negotiation with the king. And in many ways it's only Charles's stubbornness that prevents him from regaining the throne. But he is so stubborn and so insistent on the divine right of kings that even those who would like to do a deal with him can't come to one with him. He's always trying to bring the Scots back in or do a deal with the Irish um, to start another war and that and indeed succeeds in doing so and it's at that point that even those that would like to do a deal with him are really thrown into the camp of those who've always said this won't work. Huh.
1: I feel a little sorry for him. That sounds like a character defect to end all character defects, stubbornness of that sort. Yes. Um, I believe that Oliver Cromwell wasn't as big a figure early on in the Civil War as he came to be. And it was John Pym was really a very important figure at the beginning, wasn't he?
0: Yes, and that again is typical of revolutions. It's not always the case. In fact, it's frequently not the case that the people who start off leading uh, the revolution end up being the people who lead its most radical phase. They're often kind of foot soldiers in the first phase, of the, uh, of, of the revolution, uh, although in, in Cromwell's case he was actually a cavalry officer. So, uh, but he was, you know, from the ranks. He was a yeoman farmer of no particularly great uh, great standing. He was only elected as an MP right at the beginning of the of the civil war, and it was people like him. That proved to be the backbone of the parliamentary uh, side and the royalists go crazy about this, they say look there's all these upstarts that these people have no family, no breeding, no anything and, 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 and then the people behind them are even worse as when one of the great leveller heroes had a huge funeral, Thomas Rainsborough was killed in in the second civil war, At a huge funeral, marched uh, not far from here just down the road here, the royalist newspapers were saying oh yes there's thousands of people following me, it's, it's Dick the Doorsweeper, it's it's." T- on the tapster, it's you know just what are these people even thinking that they can have a say
1: in the way the nation is run? I want to bring us back to the levelers very firmly, and the, the central figure there. Could we get, go right back to where he comes from and how yeah. he got politically engaged?
0: Yeah. So John Lilburn is uh, he's a Geordie, or, uh, well, he comes from the Northeast. It's, uh, Exactly, you want to draw the Geordie boundaries but he comes from the North East he comes down to London, he's an apprentice in the City of London he's a religious radical, as I say he's uh, opposed to the um, innovations in church worship um, that Charles I is pushing through, he's a Puritan dissident, Uh, he becomes involved with Group of three people called the Puritan Martyrs, who were tortured um, and imprisoned for dissident Puritan belief. And when he's mixing with these, he begins to be involved in the business, which was already an established one, but of bringing radical uh, clerical pamphlets in from Holland. Uh, he's betrayed, arrested, put in a fleet prison, and then, as punishment, um, he's uh, tied to the back of a cart. Um, Uh, at what now is Fleet Street and whipped all the way to Westminster Yard, put in the stocks. He's still throwing pamphlets from his coat pockets while he's in the stocks and making speeches until they gag him. Um, And his defence in court was that uh, the Lords had no right to try him. And this is where he gains his title as Freeborn John. He says, no freeborn Englishman can be tried by the House uh, by the House of Lords um, and that there should be no and and again in many court cases subsequently he argues that there should be no secret trials, there should be no trials where evidence is gained by torture, that no defendant should be uh, allowed to incriminate himself uh, from his own forced uh, testimony and Indeed, we're still arguing over those things today. So that's where his title of Freeborn John Lilburn comes from. Uh, he fights in the Parliamentary Army. He's captured by the Royalists at the Battle of Brentford on the outskirts of, of London. He's held prisoner in Oxford and they're just about to execute him. Um, when Parliament says, if you execute John Lilburn, we will execute the Royalist prisoners that we hold. His wife, Elizabeth Lilburn, while she's pregnant, has to ride from London to Oxford to deliver this news just in time for him to be set free. He returns to London as a as a hero. He serves as a lieutenant of Cromwell's in the new model, not in the new model before it becomes the new model uh, army, and he's a hero of the London crowd from that from that point on. And a thorn in the side of every government, including Cromwell when he comes to power, um, from that moment on. And he builds around him a network of secret printers of petitioners, of the organisation that becomes called the levellers by Cromwell, actually, as, a, as an insult in 1647.
1: Uh, right, yes, I wonder whether that might be the case. <laughs> it's difficult not to pick up resonances of the things that are going on in the news every day at the moment in what you say. It's called Puritanism at this point in history that we're talking about and I guess the ideals put forward by groups who so I, I don't want to give any publicity mm. to... Their ideas uh, certainly purport to be highly uh, puritanical, but very extreme in that way. And so I guess almost instinctively I'm looking for some sorts of hypocrisy. I can't help noticing that there's uh, there's actual engagement.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, All at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm
0: here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, If. only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
1: With the political system in the UK going on um, amongst the people that you're talking about, with your background as I, I think it's safe to say somebody erring to the left in your in your mm, thinking, indeed. is it all a picture of righteousness amongst the levelers, or are there other sides to them?
0: Well, um, you might make that accusation more of some of the of some of the other radical sects, like the diggers and uh, uh, and the ranters, who certainly. Um, you could say confused liberty and license. Um, I think it's less true of uh, of of the Levellers. Um, I think they were some of the most politically honest um, people in the in the revolutionary experience. Partly because they stuck to their principles no matter who was in government. Um, so even when their side had won, and it lo- and their side. Cromwell and his associates were in government, in power were beginning to enrich themselves the levellers were offered or John Lilburn certainly was offered um, inducements to join that side and he didn't, he kept up the criticism and said, and Richard Overton his, his friend and printer um, said what is the difference between Cromwell's council of state and a monarchy if it continues to oppress the people so I think that charge is, is pretty hard to make, I mean the royalists made it uh, they said oh John Lilburn's always drinking and played cards and this that and the other but uh, I take that to be well A petty and B probably untrue actually probably untrue well the cards maybe but untrue (laughs) the drinking I I
1: certainly think there was a fair amount of drinking well we're still in the stage then when water wasn't particularly safe yes indeed yes (laughs) we might might let them off on that Um, we're going to take a short break to get a word from our uh, sponsor and then we'll be right back here with John Reese at Guildhall
0: Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles try the Audible service on 30 day free trial Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk Londonist and click through.
1: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm at Guildhall with historian John Rice, And uh, John, you've been looking at Audible yourself uh, what would you recommend on there at the moment? Well, there's a, a fantastic novel about this period,
0: uh, "The Crimson Ribbon" by Catherine Clements, who's speaking at the at the conference. W- one of the things we tried to do with the conference is to say that the memory of Lilburn and the Levellers is carried not just by historians, but by reenactors, by uh, authors, by the people who wrote the "Devil's Whore TV series. They're all coming down because I think that historical memory is carried in a variety of different different ways, and often not by the official school system in this uh, in this country it's an an incredible thing but if you want to pass the citizenship test and come to this country as an immigrant you have to know about the English Revolution and indeed about the Levellers but if you're at school in this country if you're a school child in this country it's not part of the syllabus so that gets carried it gets carried by a variety of, of other channels and we've tried to bring them all together and Catherine Clement's book I think is part of that
1: There remains then that suspicion that the authorities really don't want anybody asking too many questions, uh, particularly young minds. Uh, Listener, the uh, conference that we're talking about is underway right now, Um, so stop whatever you're doing. Uh, at a small asterisk. Put your shoes on and get down to the Bishopsgate Institute while we tell you what's going on there. Small asterisk at the bottom. Don't put it down if it's dangerous to do so. That's the official position of (laughs) Londoners. Good to know. Um, Yeah, it's
0: going to be a very interesting... Day, I think because um, as I say there's an there's a interesting mix of historians who've begun to kind of re-look at the levellers probably for the first time in a generation they, they, they became unfashionable when the so-called revisionist school which was quite a conservative interpretation of the English Revolution dominated historical thinking but that moment has passed and there's a new generation of historians that are looking at the levellers again and um, some of the best of them I think are, are speaking at the conference but as I say not alone with people who've made TV series, with people who've written novels, with people who've um, written songs about the, the levellers, and with politicians and activists who also carry that, uh, that tradition. So we've tried to design it so that there's a, a broad sense of how the society is reflecting on John Lilburn 400 years after his birth.
1: And if I know the Bishopsgate Institute at all, then I am expecting this to be a question of dipping in and dipping out as you please and uh, being able to fill your intellectual boots. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Right up to nine o'clock in the evening. We're, we we left off. Well, it felt like we were sort of just at the beginning of the second of the two English civil wars. Yeah, indeed.
0: And uh, and this is where the levellers really be, uh, come into their own uh They'd always been known as the London Levelers because they were so concentrated in the in the city of London. In, indeed, right around this this area here, this area, Coleman Street and the Guildhall, this part of the city of London, was the kind of Red Petrograd of the English uh, English Revolution. You could walk down the road there, and there would be unlicensed, so-called tub preachers, uh, just preaching above uh, above pubs. Contested the, the 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 kind of authorities would turn up and try and disperse the crowd, the um, right-wing uh, controversialists with right-lengthy pamphlets about how terrible everything was down in Coleman Street and Swan Alley and how radicals were gaining a hearing and the Levellers certainly met in a pub just down there on Old Jewry, called the, the whalebone. Um So this was absolutely the centre of it, but by the end of the first civil war, there were many people in the, in the New Model Army who'd been radicalised by the experience of war. As I say, This was the single bloodiest conflict ever as a proportion of the population killed, bloodier even than the First World War uh, in this country. So people had gone through an absolutely life-changing experience. Many of them had emerged from it saying, as their manifesto said, we are no mercenary army. You know, we fought for a principle, and what are we getting out of this? Where, where is the freedom that we, we fought for? So there was a whole new constituency in the army for the Levellers, and they linked up with them very quickly. Uh, this is where the famous Putney debates held when the army was camped just down the, the road outside London, in partly to overawe the Conservatives in the city. They just parked the New Model Army on the outskirts of it. Eventually, it came over, uh, it came over London Bridge and, and actually took possession of the city and drove out some of the Conservatives out of the Parliament. This, this is classic revolution behaviour. T- oh, yeah, tanks no, on the lawn. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and what, what is absolutely characteristic is, as they are mounting this military challenge, they stop, and in Putney Church and the surrounding area, they have a debate about what we're doing. What are we fighting for? And by this time, the regiments in the army have elected agitators. It meant simply agents in the 17th century, but it's where the word comes from. They were directly elected by the ordinary soldiers, and they forced the grandees, as the Levellers called them, the senior officers of the army, to allow them to be in a joint council of the army to decide the army's policy. And they met in the Putney Church and debated, what are we going to do? Ordinary soldiers. One of them is described by the clerk who takes it down. He just has next to his name in the transcript, Buffcoat, because that was the military, uh, the, the heavy leather um, cavalry jacket that they wore. That's all his name is. He's just buff coat, And he, he says, you know, d- what are we fighting for? What rights have we got yet? And the levellers bring forward the famous agreement of the people which says we have to have a government based on popular sovereignty and Cromwell and his son-in-law Henry Ireton say we can't do that, we can't do that because if we do this it'll be the end of property. Henry Ireton says everything that I say is because I have an eye to property in other words democracy can't live with property and you people insisting on democracy it'll be the end of property and that is probably the great original of that debate, and that debate is still being had now, when the Troika say to the Greek government, terribly sorry, you've elected the wrong government, that debate property or democracy is still
1: going on, it happened first here Is that where we get the uh, idea of property is theft, that that idea?
0: Well that was Proudhon much later a French socialist, a semi-anarchist but the origin of that idea that there is a a conflict uh, between popular sovereignty and private property that 's right that that's point of origin is really in, a, in any modern sense is the
1: english revolution that moment that you 're describing there as it sounds to be such a pivotal moment, I must be completely clear in my mind was the Uh, the moment's pause and the insistence on knowing exactly what they're about was that because there were a lot of competing ideas was it because they got that far and realised they didn't know what they were doing was it just to to make sure everyone's on the same page what what was the character of this
0: well it was because the the, um, first civil war had been won this was a victorious army and as soon as it had defeated the king the question was what next and the answers to that question were myriad One answer was, we'll negotiate with him, we'll get him to lay aside some of the worst excesses that we didn't like, and we'll, as one of the cavalry regiments called it, re-enthrone him. Um, That was one idea. Another idea was um, that uh, there would be a kind of more severe set of restrictions on the king, and it ran in a spectrum right the way through to just beginning to emerge the idea of a republic. We don't need a king. And all points in between those two
1: things. What you're saying about property there uh, and the short-livedness, relatively speaking, of the levellers and the need for the levellers reminds me somewhat of the Occupy movement in in some respects, not all. And I mentioned before that one of the big accusations that people used to shoot down the idea of uh, what Occupy was all about uh, was that there didn't seem to be a single clear direction and a a single clear goal. Mm. And, And so a lot of people wouldn't give them the time of day. And it seems to me that where the levellers and the parliamentary forces more generally could unite behind a dislike of the status quo and, and perhaps focus on the obnoxious character of the king in order to do it. If you haven't got that rallying foe, you've got a bit of a problem, haven't you? In, in a way, uh, one of the safest bets for a, uh, let's say, a ruling political class today or something is to make everything nice and fuzzy and make the target indistinct Mm.
0: yes i think that's i think that's true uh but what i would say about the levelers is they supplied that vital element of clarity when they brought forward the agreement of the people it was a very short pamphlet form it went through four different versions it was distributed widely as a pamphlet and amongst the armed forces and it it provides exactly that focus it it answered the question what did we fight for? And the answer was, we fought for a popular sovereignty which has to be agreed by the mass of the population and it contains these five six or po- the, six points or it, it varied. And it got so far as actually after the execution of Charles I, the agreement of the people was actually laid before Parliament um, as this is what we would like to see. Now it got very quickly brushed aside by Cromwell and Ireton. They were in power now. They didn't really need a more radical programme then. They were more or less happy with what they got but it's a tribute to the levelers that they couldn't be ignored they had to be militarily defeated uh, partly because they had strength in the army and so there were a series of mutinies uh, in 1649 after the execution of the king one just down in bishop's gate a stone's throw from where we'll be having the conference led by a young soldier called robert lockyer um cromwell and fairfax had to come down and after two days seize the colours of the regiment back take him and shoot him have him shot in St Uh, Paul's churchyard and then there's the famous Burford mutinies very shortly afterwards which was a series of military risings across the west West country eventually defeated at Burford in the Cotswolds by Cromwell charging down the Leveller regiments and that's where um, in exactly the same year as all this is happening, uh, Cromwell then gets hold of John Lilburn, who he's had locked up in the Tower, drags him to the Guildhall here and puts him on trial for his life. Um, twice Cromwell tried this. Again, in, the, later in, the, in a few years later, he tried it. Both times, um, juries refused to convict him. And there were church bells and bonfires from here right the way through the City of London uh, when he was released.
1: So what, what was going on here then? Was it that uh, Cromwell had lost the plot and was, uh, I don't know, becoming t- authoritarian in the same way that the king was? What, what was happening?
0: I think often in victorious revolutions the, there comes a dividing point where um, there are some for some people, once they defeated the king and there was a republic, that was far enough. That was as far as they thought the social base of England would, would, would travel. And there are others who said this victory is not complete enough. We're not talking about popular sovereignty. You've got a military government. This is what the levelers said to Cromwell. You haven't got popular sovereignty. You're ruling by the sword. Um, And we want popular sovereignty. And, And Cromwell, even though he'd relied on an alliance with the levelers to defeat the king, said no, we're not going any further than this. This is as far as we go. He didn't want to become a king, did he? No, and to, and, and to his credit, he was offered the crown and turned it down. So I think it's, it's, it's wrong to say that, that Cromwell wasn't a revolutionary of a particular type. He was. But he halted the revolution uh, at a point a less radical than the point that the levellers were aiming for. And as he was heard to say through the door of somebody listening to him talking to his confederates, he said, either we crush the levellers or they will crush us and that's what he proceeded to do. It was basically broken up as an active element in politics, more slowly than some historians think. It had an afterlife, a little bit longer than most historians think, but certainly by the time you've got towards the end of the the 1650s, just before the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, in 1659, as Cromwell dies and uh, his son dies, becomes a uh, protector there's a brief flurry again of leveller, of leveller activity saying okay you know the, the, that era is over maybe now we can do something more radical but the restoration puts an end uh, an end to that but it lives on then as a as a political tradition radicals in the 18th century john wilkes had Le- leveller uh, pamphlets and uh, you find them in the libraries of the chartists and uh, and so forth so it lives on then as a kind of intellectual and political inspiration
1: those dying days of the interregnum what i'm hearing and what you're saying is really a police state and an occupation of sorts i was struck by some of the stories of what went on for the Quakers as they had to have secret meetings in houses with false walls and uh, everything seems to have been driven underground and there, there was a resistance it must have been a huge breath of fresh air to welcome back a monarch who largely stayed out of politics
0: well it didn't change for the dissenting uh, in fact it got worse for the dissenting Christians uh, for Baptists for Quakers um the Clarendon code uh, Clarendon had been Uh, Edward Hyde had been Charles I's advisor. He comes in as a key figure in the Restoration monarchy the Clarendon Code then institutionalises discrimination against dissenting, uh, dissenting Christians, the Five Mile Act and so forth, this is all part of the the, the Clarendon Code, so it gets very sharply worse, uh, I've been having a look at what was happening down in my home county of Wilkshire and, um, and the dissenters are meeting often in meetings of 2,000, this is in rural Wilkshire, out in the woods to avoid persecution, some former leveller allies like Colonel John Reid who was, um, who was the governor of Poole during the Revolution is in southern Wiltshire in Port and setting up a kind of Baptist church there. He's hauled into the Tower of London and examined by um, the officers of Charles II
1: during the Restoration. So, no, it's tough times. Uh, under the Restoration for the dissenting Christians. Well, that, that surprises me knowing because I have always had the uh, Glorious Revolution and uh, Charles II's uh, period in general as uh, down as the Benny Hill show. <laughs> uh, essentially, just uh, sex and, and uh, licentious behaviour.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that was okay if you were in the court. Uh, I, I, out in the dissenting churches, there was less fun to be had. I not
1: think. not one rule for the rich and another for the poor, <laughs> A staggering surely. Staggering thought, I know, but sometimes it happens. Well, thank goodness they had the revolution to sort all that out. Yeah, indeed, yes. Well,
0: you know, the dissent, that's one of the very real sort of inheritances. Um, You know, it was E.P. Thompson, who was himself, of course, a Marxist historian, who said that the British working class owed more to Methodism than to Marxism. But whether or not that's true, it's certainly true that that Baptist dissenting tradition, the Quaker tradition, I mean, today, you look around the country uh, in London, indeed in the the Friends Meeting House in in Euston Road, if there's a left-wing meeting going on, it's probably one of the places it's likely to be is in a Quaker Meeting House
1: which leads very nicely into the final question really which is where do we find the strongest evidence of the leveller's influence today
0: well i think it is uh i think it has become knitted into the to the fabric of the left christopher hill of course is probably still um the single best known historian of the english revolution he was a member of the communist party and then left it over the invasion of hungary in 1956 um going to bookshops today it's still a christopher hill book you'll find on the on the shelves and most of the people who've written about the levellers most of the books that you pick up about the levellers brailsford's book which hill completed after brailsford died he was a socialist and a left winger and as i say hill completed the book pauline Gregg, who wrote published in 1961 but still the outstanding biography of john lilburn was a socialist and a radical so i think that in the trade union movement the annual burford demonstration where the levelers were shot in oxfordshire those are the the major kind of conduits down which that runs they're not the only ones there are many people who are on the left who remember the levelers as well and who respect lilburn as a as a champion of civil liberties and so forth but i would say that's probably in in its
1: strongest current that's where it lies Thanks for taking the time out today Listener, if this has prodded your curiosity into action Then get yourself down to the Bishopsgate Institute In case you don't know And by Jove you should It's Liverpool Street, station you want And you need to cross the road from there And look both ways, but especially left John Reese, thanks very much Thank you And that's all for this week My thanks for this week to John Reese. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley the theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolf.